And uh, so welcome to everybody here and also those that are watching online. And um, we appreciate everybody and we pray that uh, we've got some handouts if you don't have one. And thank you so much, Roy. And uh, we've been looking at Colossians 2, chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. And you can get your Bible and turn there if you would. Uh, we've been talking about four different warnings. Now we're on false philosophy. Paul's warning against false philosophy. And that actually covers verses 8 through 15. So we're going to be on that for a few weeks, uh, covering that. He talks about it, then he talks about the basis of the, and foundation of the warning. And then goes on in legalism, angel worship, and asceticism. And we're going to review that. And then uh, today we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And um, I want to do two things. I have a clarification for uh, last week. Um, I brought the handout that talked about the doctrine of imputation and uh, gave a pretty good survey of that. But I want to clarify one thing. Uh, on there it said, uh, and I didn't bring another handout, I just wanted to mention it to you. I found one thing that I don't understand, talked to pastor about it, and he could not find that either. So the doctrine of imputation, this is by J.V. Fesco. The doctrine of imputation teaches that while Adam's sin is imputed to us because he is our natural federal head, God imputes or credits the righteousness and suffering of Jesus to those that are in him. And conversely, he imputes the souls, the sins of those redeemed to Christ. So he's saying there, we're descendants of Adam. He's the federal representative. And so his nature became sinful. We became sinful. So his sin was imputed to us uh, as his descendants. And because of that, as part of salvation... And as we read the other day, part of justification last week, uh, God imputes or accounts or accredits the righteousness of Christ to those that are in him, those that are saved. And he imputes to sin, our sins conversely to him. The, uh, Luther called that the exchange. Our sins were born by Christ. He took them on himself paid the penalty we receive the righteousness of christ when god looks at us he sees us there's a legal declaration of justification um, that we're uh, not seen as sinful before god because god took that on us <clears throat> there's one word here that bothered me um, and i should have flagged it earlier but i got to, so i talked i was talking to pastor about it and i could not find it the word suffering it says god imputes or credits the righteousness and suffering of jesus to those that are in him and i could never find that anywhere in any theological book that i had pastor looked up in one he had and um, I, I looked up i researched fairly extensively spent a number of hours looking 
So that's some, he doesn't repeat it in his, uh, his illustration and his conclusion on that handout. So there's some way he felt that Christ's suffering was imputed to us. But we don't need necessarily, I don't think theologically that we need his suffering. We need his righteousness. Now he was known as a suffering servant uh, uh, um, the, in Isaiah uh, mentions that and other places talks about Christ's suffering uh, in obedience he went to the cross so um, I want you to omit that so this is you be the theologian moment okay <laughs> so in your brain don't get that entrenched in your brain uh, what bothers me about it is if we say that we need need somehow suffering of Christ imputed to us, it, 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 it actually smacks of works, you know, because sufferings are, you know. So it was Christ that did the work. He was the only one that was eligible because he was a sinless, spotless Lamb of God that went and died in our place. So his righteousness is imputed to us, not his suffering. Now we follow up on that which is left behind of the suffering. We just talked about that and what that meant in our classes. But that, again, does not mean in any way, shape, or form that we work for our salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So I wanted to mention that because I really like to get things straight. If you're going to be the theologian, you want to be a, a, an orthodox, correct theologian and not succumb to any uh, intended or unintended heresies. So I want questions about that. Suffering is not involved in NPO. Oh, I'm sorry, Betty. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Uh, the very first one on that doctrine of imputation, it was a handout from last week. Yeah, the definition, right. First page, first thing. So on the second line, last word, scratch out suffering. Now it may be in some way that, that uh, some people have a view of that, which isn't what I'm thinking it is, but he used the word and. So he accredits righteousness and suffering. I don't think that um, suffering is appropriate there. Uh, the, uh, the things that I see and the teaching and the verses we have talks about uh, righteousness. Okay. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Thanks for your patience there. Uh, so hopefully you're at uh, Colossians 2. And um, the second thing I want to do is we have some questions. It's time for more questions. And these are fun questions. So not going to be really. And it's open book. You can open Colossians. You can have Colossians open. Open book. Open book test. I want you to get used to opening your Bible. Okay. So before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, of, of sharing um, in our uh, understanding of Colossians. I pray that you would help us to really gain a true picture um, not an erroneous picture, but a true picture of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he has done for us, and how he represents you to us. We thank you, Father, for this book, which gives us the, one of the fullest pictures in the entire scriptures of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we, at home, 
online, those that are here, help us as we open our Bibles and in true fellowship around the Word of God, we seek to understand what you are trying to tell us and what Paul wrote here. And I pray that your Spirit would bless our efforts and be with those that aren't here because of illness and injury and, and uh, difficulties. Pray that in the traveling, pray that you'd bring them back safely. Thank you for those that are here. Be with those families that are represented here for their well-being and health and safety. And I pray that you protect us from the heat. Keep us safe. Thank you for this cool church to meet in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I have a, uh, roughly eight questions, but some of them have a couple of parts. So I didn't count all of them. So it's roughly 10 or 11 with the parts. Eight questions with some of them a few parts. So these are not hard questions, truly. What was Paul's... You could just... Shout out the answer. Raise your hand so I can see who it is because uh, I, I may not be able to hear you as well as you can hear me. Uh, but I have my hearing aids in. What was Paul's position in the church? What was, it, what was Paul's position? Paul, when he wrote a letter to somebody, say, Paul, a blank. An apostle. So what is an apostle? Yes. Yes, exactly. It, 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 the word means messenger. Now, in the truest sense, the 12 apostles were sent out to establish the church. And um, so, as a result, they, like Paul, uh, went out and uh, they were responsible for spreading the gospel. Yeah, there, the qualifications usually are listed in several, and I didn't write them down, but they had witnessed Christ's ministry, commissioned by him, and um, um, there was the Matthias, the one they chose after uh, Judas betrayed Christ, so there's challenges there as far as was he a true, uh, but I let... You know, I'll let the Lord take care of that. We don't know the answers to everything. But essentially, those that gift or that ministry ended at the death of those 12. Um, start having problems if you're trying to resurrect the, the office and gift of apostleship now because the church is 2,000 years old. You don't need, you need missionaries, but we don't need apostles. If you were looking at the closest thing to an apostle now, it would probably be a missionary. Well, uh, yeah, I'm just, I, this gift of teacher, you know, and I may or may not have the gift of teaching. <laughs> the Lord decides that. I'm still trying to develop that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, apostle is a specific, but. But I never saw the Lord Jesus Christ and you know in person in his ministry or and Christ appeared to Paul and then he went to the wilderness as was taught too. So I um, it's a special gift that was given in the transition between um, the the ministry of Christ, the 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 uh, the, the under the law and then under grace. Okay. So 
It's because it's, now there are some people that try to are resurrecting apostles, and that's a dangerous thing. So you don't want to, I don't believe that that is in, still in effect. So why was Paul writing Colossians? It's been a long time since we mentioned that. Why was he writing this book? He wrote it. Yes. Because it, the Gnosticism, yeah, not Gnostics, yes. The, yeah, uh, agnog, the, the, they're almost were agnostic. Agnostic means no knowledge, no knowledge of God. Gnostic means knowing once. So, um, the, Paul, we think that, we believe that Epaphras or Epaphras, mentioned in chapter 1, uh, studied under Paul when he was um, at Ephesus for a couple of years. And we believe that he was either commissioned directly by Paul or that ministry to go and start the church in the Lycus River Valley. And went later on, while Paul was in prison in Rome, he went to Rome to tell Paul that this heresy was confronting the church. And so... Uh, Paul then sat down and wrote the letter and sent it back to them. Uh, so how many times, third question, how many times did Paul visit Colossae? <laughs> so he did a zero. Zero times, trick question. I started to ask you, and, and, and what missionary journey, just to trick you, but I thought that was tacky, so I didn't do that. So the answer is zero. He did not. He certainly, he talks about Epaphras being his representative and sharing his message uh, that he had passing on from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is it significant that he never visited Colossae? And... and um, And if he didn't know them personally, uh, why would he write them? I heard something. He was concerned. He, well, yeah, he was concerned. He was concerned about that, that heresy that you mentioned. It, and that heresy is never mentioned, but we believe by what it, the various aspects that are mentioned that he talks about, that it was the beginnings of Gnosticism which is still around today. And I told you it made me sick. I was reading a couple of weeks ago so I could make sure I told you folks what it is. I decided, like Paul, just to address the error because I couldn't understand it. It was depressing. You know, it was so uh, um, ethereal, mystic. Uh, so I think it was significant because um, you said he was concerned, right? That's what you said? Yeah. As the apostle over, there you go. Over yeah. the, uh, the, yeah. the, the non-Jews, the non yeah. that was his responsibility. Yes. Responsibility Amen. To address these issues. Yes. He had the, uh, authority. He was the authority. Yes. And as the authority, having someone tell you what to do You've never met them. There's no relationship per se other than the spirit relationship. That's very difficult. Who is that person to be telling me what to do? That's the American response. <laughs> so how he had to teach them convincingly 
the danger of this error in a way that they would believe him and pay heed. And that's difficult. It's difficult to share challenging things to somebody you know, and you're resting on that relationship. Um, when I was in security, uh, usually if I had to go and talk to a client that was using our security services, it was because something was bad. I made sure that I made every effort to have a good relationship with them that I could fall back on where they trusted me because they knew me and I demonstrated to them consistency and done everything they wanted plus more. So when a bad thing happened, I could fall back on that relationship, take them to lunch, all kinds of stuff, you know. So <laughs> you have a, have, a good, have a good relationship with folks. So Paul didn't have the benefit of that. Now, he, he was responsible for the church because he led Epaphras to the Lord and may even have commissioned Epaphras to go down there and start the church. But very difficult um, to work with somebody you've never met. But the Spirit helped him in that communication. And he had the authority of an, as being an apostle, which is why I ask you that question. So there were actually three churches in the Lycus River Valley where uh, Colossae was located. You know, about 100 and miles down uh, the river, Lycus River, from uh, in a main traffic pattern, travel road, east-west. Do anybody remember the names of the other churches? Uh, actually not. Ephesians was kind of on the coast. Ephesus was on the coast. Hierapolis is one. And the church is mentioned for being uh, lukewarm in Revelation. The Laodicea. So they were all within, I don't know, 12, 15 miles in kind of a triangle in the Lycus River Valley. And it's often thought that uh, Ep uh, Epaphras or Epaphras started all three churches, but that's not written for us and we don't know. Um, what country is Colossae in now? Turkey. Turkey, exactly. Now, what missionary do we have in Turkey in um, Izmir? Absolutely. Brady and Sarah. Um, now, where would you go if you wanted to see who our missionaries are? Yeah, on the back board. Where else? Turkey. Yes. Where else? In the directory. Yeah. Yes, that, that's what I was after. So this lady, this really great administrative person that works in our church, put them, put them in the, put them in our, our directory. I know, I know. I got to get that in. That's, uh, that's you getting in good with folks, so that when. Okay, so, so I'm talking about Cindy. Cindy put Cindy put them in the directory. So, uh, so um, you can all thank her for that later. Okay, okay. So now. Uh, what is the main, back to serious part, what is the main theme of Colossians? Why did Paul write Colossians uh, theme-wise? Now, the, what he, he wrote it to confront and refute the heresy. Supremacy of Christ. 
Yeah, supremacy of Christ. And a lot of people look at Ephesians, which talks about the body of which Christ is ahead. It emphasizes the body of Christ. And that's just a complement to Colossians, which talks about the head of the body, which is Christ. And the reason is, I believe, is because it uh, talks about Christ being uh, having supremacy, preeminency, him being God. Most her- well, all heresies that I have ever seen attack the Lord Jesus Christ. They attack the second person of the Trinity and say that they are not God. Okay. Now, what other book of the New Testament is written to Colossae? Well, actually, to a person at Colossae. Oh, okay. Onesimus? No, no. The name is the name of the book. It's a person's name. It's one of the few persons. Philemon? Exactly. Philemon. Okay. Uh, Philemon uh, was known by Paul. And why did he write this book? A small, very small letter. It's just more letter size than most epistles. Why did he write this book to Philemon at Colossae? Get back in good spirits with uh, Onesimus. Yes. So uh, his purpose was to help a runaway. So this is this is a, a great story. I really love this story. In some way, uh, Onesimus came in con a runaway slave that had probably stolen from um, Philemon. Onesimus had gone to Rome. And he had um, run in contact with Paul or his ministry, and he got saved. And so Paul loved him. He was very helpful to him there, wanted to keep him in Rome to help him. But he knew he needed to send him back to, make, uh, to reconcile with the person he had wronged, his, uh, his, the person, that Onesimus, uh, Philemon, who was owned him. And... So he sent him back and he said, if he's done anything to you, put it on my account. <laughs> and he, he kind of said, well, you know, you owe everything to me. Because I, I think uh, through the, again, through the mission, the, uh, probably when he was at Ephesus, we don't know that. But many think when he was at Ephesus, Philemon came in contact with Paul or his ministry there and, and was saved. But it's a picture of imputation. Uh, put it on my account. It's, it's considered a type in, in Scripture. Philemon got saved, but he needed to make things right with the person that he offended. So Paul sent him back. He went back with Tychicus that delivered the letter to the Colossians and said, or to Philemon rather, and said, he said, uh, if he's done anything wrong, put it on my account. And, and so um, he did that, and we don't know what the result was, but we trust that the result was good. If Paul wrote you a letter and said something like that, I think you'd do, go to the nth degree to fulfill that because he'd know Paul would check on you. <laughs> so other questions about that? So Paul wrote the letter to Philemon to... 
And the theme, uh, what do you think the theme then of Philemon is? I, we haven't gone over this. Well, yeah, that's kind of underneath the surface, uh, but the forgiveness, yeah, and it's a, it's really a picture too. This isn't the theme, but it's really a picture of what things were like in the first century church. Uh, uh, the the church was one. We don't know if they had more than one, but at least one church was in Philemon's house, and uh, and also uh, love in Christ is. There's several themes that are associated with the forgiveness and love right there um, the prison epistles uh, ones written from uh, the, the uh, first imprisonment of Paul Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon Colossians and Philemon are related and you find a lot of parallel passages in Ephesians as a result they were written about all about the same time so now just in anticipation of what we're going to be looking at um, and what we looked at last week Last question, no applause. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Which of the following statements are true? Christ was fully human. Is that true? Okay. Second statement, Christ was fully divine. Is that true? Yeah. No, wait a minute. How can that be? You said he's fully human. How could he be fully human and fully divine? I don't know. And that, no one knows. The, fully that's it. God made that happen. Fully human and fully divine. So we're going we're gonna to look at that briefly again in our review. Okay, questions about the questions. Okay. I, I can't hear you, Alice. <laughs> well, I could pass them out, but it's, it's more paper, and I didn't know if, you know, and most of them are in there. Some of them aren't. I didn't talk about Philemon, but what? That the answers were oh, the answers were in there. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you. Turn off the aids. Yeah. If I yeah. So um, let's let's now read uh, Colossians uh, eight through twenty three, and I'm going to again tell you the four different sections that are here: uh, false philosophy verses 8 through 15, and that's in your handout under their four warnings. And we're still on false philosophy, verses 8 through 15, and then legalism 16, 17, angel worship 18, 19, and asceticism 20 through 23. And remember, asceticism means um, a, an attempt to restrain the body, a beating down of the flesh by severe measures. You know those guys that would carry whips and beat themselves and lie on beds of nails and puncture their face and body with all kinds of stuff. And sometimes that's associated with monasticism, being in monasteries and so forth. So <clears throat> starting out, chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, 2, verse 8 of Colossians, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness dwelleth, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom, that's in Christ, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all, forgiven your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And this is 16 and 17 legalism. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Verse 18 and 19 is angel worship. Let no man beguile you of your reward and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increase it with the increase of God. And finally, asceticism. Wherefore, if ye be dead in Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I just want us to get familiar with that. The reason I read that whole passage, I would like us to get familiar with that. Okay, so four warnings in this passage, uh, which we just looked at. The warning against false philosophy, I just read, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. So, in the handout, it says, simply stated, the false teaching, particularly false philosophy of the heretics, was not in accord, not in, co- in, the, in accord or agreement with the truth as revealed in Christ. Christ is the true test of theology, and he is the absolute standard of measurement for all doctrine. If it is not in accordance with Christ and the revelation God has given to us regarding his son, then we must reject it. And then be there to have, uh, after the specific warning stated, the basis and foundation of the warning, verses 9 through 15, are the warnings. Verse 9 talks about the supremacy and deity. Paul's warning is founded upon Christ's sole, singular, and unshared supremacy. This is the basis of who Christ is. So corresponding to that in verses 10 through 15 and the rest of the passage of uh, the philosophy part of the warning, the, the sufficiency in humanity speak to Christ's absolute and complete sufficiency and his capability and ability or qualification to meet man's need. He's capable to meet man's need. Christ is all and all you need. And a, a, a Greek scholar, famous um, biblical scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, wrote that. And I added, Christ is a soul, our only source for what you need for spiritual things. That's so important to understand. And under this note, 
So the impact of this these passage this passage verses nine through fifteen and his warnings that talk about things that people substitute for Christ, philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism. Um, the impact is right there under that note I'm reading, and I put it in there so you have it. Because of who Christ is, he's God. And what we find in him, soul sufficiency to meet our need. Any other tradition of men, including philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, it's false because it's not after Christ. All else is false teaching. It's erroneous. It's heresy. And it's from Satan. Okay. So now there are three affirming statements in verses 9 and 10 which relate to Christ as supreme and sufficient and form the basis and foundation of his warning here. Okay? Those four warnings. The, <clears throat> so the first one, the first statement is that Christ is God. He's deity. Verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So this verse is one of the clearest and strongest statements of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. And it, and it continues that theme of fullness, pleroma in Greek, that's mentioned in Colossians 1.19, that in him all fullness should dwell. Now, it, I get such an amazing uh, response to Paul taking the, her the heretic's words, the false teacher's words, like Pleroma, that they use to believe what they think God is, what they think heaven is, and what they think some kind of inner smudging piece or something that you, you can earn means, and some other things. And he takes it, and he uses that word, go to the top of page two, to properly describe Christ is God, who is the real fullness. He's the real pleroma. He's the fullness of the Godhead. He's the very essence of God. And it, that, that word means that he is being God. Christ is not merely God-like. He is God. So the Gnostics taught all kinds of crazy stuff. But Paul said Christ is God the last sentence in that note on top of page 2. Paul said, Christ is God and the full and complete expression, revelation, and essence of God. Therefore, any other teaching is false and after the tradition of man. Now, the second statement that he makes to us is the real humanity of Christ. It's one word. For in him dwelleth, uh, verse 9b, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, another note here. Christ is God in the flesh. And that I'm under two on page two. The real humanity of Christ. Christ is God in the flesh, incarnate, in the flesh. Uh, carne means meat or f and flesh, okay? Christ was also God with... Uh, Christ was also God and with God in eternity past, so that's his pre-incarnate form before he was in the flesh. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. Now, there was no beginning. That's a kind of a metaphor for we can't understand that. It was in the, in the he always was. When Christ, the word who is God, was clothed with flesh, is incarnate, and came in Bethlehem, he was still Christ, who is God. Christ is fully human and fully divine. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, and many other passages. This is one of the essentials of the faith. Christ is God. Okay. Number three, the sufficiency of Christ. These are three statements that are said that are made to show the foundation or the basis for Paul's warning about this heresy. So I put non-theologically, Christ is completely able and capable in those parentheses in number item number three. In verse ten. Verse ten says, And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. And you are completed him who is the head of all principality and power. Note, another note. Because Christ is fully God and fully man, we are made full and complete as we share his fullness in him, in union with him. Look at that first sentence under note in your handout. Because Christ is fully God and fully man, we can, or we are made full, we're made complete as we share in his fullness in him, in union with him. See verse 10, Paul says, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Only as we are joined to Christ is this fullness ours. The main point is that in Christ, very important to hear this, don't let the dull voice here <laughs> distract you from the truth. The main point is that in Christ our every spiritual need is met because of his resources made available to us in him. And uh, Curtis Vaughn, a theological theology professor, said, possessing Christ, we possess all. Possessing him, we possess all. Believers, MacArthur says, believers are complete in Christ. He uses that same word, uh, uh, having the fullness or being complete or being full. Uh, Christ is uh, the fullness of God rests in Christ, and we in him are complete. Now, we're not God, but uh, MacArthur says believers are complete in Christ both positionally by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ. So when God sees us, we've been justified and declared as righteous because he sees Christ righteous. So positionally, but standing before God in our position, he sees us as righteous because of what Christ has done for us. So believers are complete in Christ, both positionally because of the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ, and number two, because of the complete sufficiency of all the heavenly resources for spiritual maturity that Christ has. We have access to all the rich resources that God has 
And that's part of our salvation, working out our salvation with trembling and fear, and knowing and being sanctified and set apart and growing. When we're saved, we're not saved to be perfect right that moment or complete. We're saved to, to grow and mature, just like children grow. We become children in Christ. We're newborn babes, devoured the sincere milk of the word, and then we grow thereby. And we learn how to exhibit Christ's character and be more like Christ and to reflect him. And that power comes from him. So um, Paul shows, next paragraph, Paul shows the Colossians and us that there's no need as a result of these things. There's no need for Christians to turn anywhere else except to Christ for spiritual help. And that includes not to philosophy, laws, angels, or works. Christ is all and all we need. Again, F.F. Bruce, I love that saying. And Wesley has said, Thou, O Christ, art all I need, more than all in thee I find. Charles Wesley. Well, it's Wesley. I'm not sure if it's Charles or the other brother. Christ, Christ all sufficiency is shown by the statement that he is, in verse 10, he's the head of all principality of power. And this means that Christ is a source of life. I wrote that down, little diamonds there. Source of life. He's a creator over all existence. He's a sovereign Lord. He's supreme over all existence. And he's the sustaining Lord. He's the source of life. He's the sovereign over it. And he, he rules over it. And then he keeps it going. He maintains everything. Christ is all and all you need. Um, now, those are the three statements he has. Now, there's three things that Christ has done for us at the bottom of page two. See Roman numeral two? The three things Christ has done for us that substantiate his sufficiency, that would show his sufficiency. And these are in verses 11 through 15. We're looking at verses 11 and 12. We'll look at 13 and 14 and 15 later. If you'll turn to the top of page three. Spiritual circumcision. Now, I want to share this quote with you because it really describes this verse, uh, I think the meaning of these verse, Charles Erdman is particularly eloquent at summing up things. And the verse is, In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And this is verse 11, uh, three parts of it. And Charles Erdman says, Up to the measure of human capacity up to the limit of ideal human destiny, Christians are made partakers of that divine life of beauty and holiness and love which in its fullness dwells in Christ. Christians need to seek no other source of grace. They can show allegiance and submission to no other spiritual beings. For Christ is the head of all principality and power. Least of all need they place reliance upon the Jewish ordinances and ceremonies advocated by the false teachers, works. The typical rite was that of circumcision. The reality corresponding to that symbol of circumcision had already been experienced. They were already saved. By accepting Christ, by abandoning their sins, and by spiritual renewal, they had received the true circumcision. They had been, as Paul declares, 
circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands and the putting off of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. So let's look at A under on the top of page 3. In Him. It starts off in whom, which is literally in Christ, in Him. That means in union with Christ, joined or connected to Christ. It's at the beginning of the sentence, so it means the, the emphasis is there. Circumcision without hands contrast the Christian spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of Christ at the time of salvation with the old physical circumcision required by the Mosaic law, which was now being mandated by the false teachers at Colossae. False teachers always like to get you working to do things. So they were teaching that the circumcision of Mosaic law was required and um, Vaughn says that circumcision of the Mosaic law taught in the Old Testament was uh, reflected or symbolized the cutting away of man's uncleanness and was an outward sign of one's participation in Israel's covenant with God. It's part of their covenant. They were to be circumcised. And um, the physical circumcision was made with hands and actually affected an external organ of the body. In contrast to that, Christ's circumcision is spiritual and not made with hands. It's not physical. It doesn't relate to a particular organ, but it relates to the inner spiritual man expressed in Romans 2.28 and Philippians 3.3 as circumcision of the heart. And spiritual circumcision is a cleansing of a sin that comes by faith in God. That's MacArthur quote. And that Romans 2.28, I'm going to read to you. Now, this is a bit, he's, he's doing a contrast between spiritual Jews and uh, people that are following the law. Okay, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So, He's saying um, the outward Jew is the one's a physical descendant of Abraham who was circumcised in the flesh. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. He's saying those things uh, are passed away. That's the old. But he is a Jew, that is a true spiritual child of God, which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. He's, he's saying that the outward rite of circumcision is of value only when it reflects the inner reality of a heart separated from sin uh, and unto God. That is salvation. And that's at MacArthur. Salvation is not from the law our works, but it's from God's Spirit working in our heart. And that's a contrast. Philippians 3.3 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus who have and have no confidence in the flesh. Okay. They were pacing confidence in the flesh, the Jews, because they had it. And it was continuing to go past its, its uh, uh, the law was invalidated. Christ fulfilled the law. So they needed no more to try to keep it. They needed to accept Christ. So 
putting off, the next passage, number C, in putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that's 11b. In whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, this part, and putting off the body of sins by the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. Now, um, the Greek word for putting off indicates putting off or stripping off or casting away through the imagery and illustration of actually taking old dirty clothes like you'd worked uh, on your car or in the garden and you're just filthy. You take those clothes off and you put uh, clean ones on. And there are multiple meanings of this view and I'm going to read to you um, MacArthur's simple explanation which I think will help I thought this passage was rather difficult to understand. And he says, MacArthur, circumcision symbolized man's need for cleansing of the heart and was the outward sign of that cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. At salvation, believers undergo a spiritual circumcision by putting off the sins of the flesh. This is the new birth, the new creation in conversion. The outward affirmation of the already accomplished inner transformation now is baptism by water. So we've moved to that. Okay, now looking at your handout under C. Uh, there are multiple meanings of this verse, uh, but I believe the best one is that um, this signifies at our spiritual conversion, our salvation, it's through spiritual circumcision, that believers have a removal or putting off of the sins of the flesh and that power that exists to keep us doing those things. Before we're Christians, we are slaves to sin. And now we've been freed from the necessity to sin because we have a new nature. And we're freed from the uh, power of the flesh that's because of uh, salvation. And, and we're a new man, new nature in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The sense is that we now can put off the power uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the power of our flesh is evidenced in our body through the influence of our fallen nature, our evil sin nature. The putting off and casting away is mortifying the flesh and the body through the new nature, the new creation in Christ and serving Him, finding deliverance from and victory over the assaults of evil. Now, I want to read... Dr. McGee is masterful at taking a couple of homespun words and helping us understand complex passages. So I think, while this doesn't cover all the ramifications of this, I think it hits the nail on the head. So bear with me a few more seconds. I want you to hear this. Paul, McGee says, is telling them to get rid of that which is outward. The real circumcision is the new birth. He explained this to the Galatians. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. 
we've become old things have passed away but all things become new galatians six fifteen, we become a new creature when you and i come to christ and trust him as our savior we rest in him we're identified with him so it's that is what this passage means and it's simple simple nature. Now I've got a bunch of verses down here that yeah. yes we still live in this way. Yes, right. The, the, so you, you, you don't automatically you know you learn to yield to the Holy Spirit yes, through yes, the new man the Spirit to help you yield to the new man. You had no choice but to obey the flesh. Yes. Absolutely, and thank you for clarifying that because that's important. Uh, the um, I wanted to read uh, one of the early church fathers said um, that the bodily circumcision was one member and mere symbolism of a form of purity. In, in, in obedience to the covenant. God told them to do that in the Old Testament. The spiritual circumcision, the new birth, is the putting away of the whole power of the flesh. And that, not in symbol, but in reality. I like that quote. Um, I, I, I'm going to stop there uh, and we'll move into baptism. Um, so this is the first Spiritual circumcision. There are three things here that um, Christ has done for us to, that show his sufficiency and substantiates that. Spiritual circumcision, forgiveness of sins, and victory over the forces of evil. So that's what we're going to be doing. So questions? Yes, ma'am. It's not a question, it's a comment. Okay. Um, I like the idea of looking at the, the knife of Moses. Yeah. 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 Difference when you consider the simplicity of the function of the knife yeah. versus the word of Christ. Wow, that's yeah, very good, very good, yeah. Um, always a challenge to relate the Old Testament to the New. It's if, uh, Thank you all for being here. Let's have a word of prayer to end. And uh, um, Father, we appreciate your help in allowing me to come um, with sore feet, being able to sit on this stool and share your word. And certainly, Lord, our bodies are frail. But Lord, we have access spiritually to all the divine resources available through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help all of us take advantage of those, Lord, that we might be more like Christ, that Christ's image would be stamped on us, that when people see us, they see the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for all the folks that are here gathered today and those that are watching from home or on Internet. I pray your blessing upon each family, each one watching. I pray that you would increasingly would give us an understanding of your word. I pray that you'd be with our service to follow, be with our pastor as he shares God's word. Help us to sing, Lord, in a way which is most pleasing to you. And I pray your, our worship service would be pleasing and acceptable to you as praise. 
pray that you forgive us of our sins. Help us to be, again, um, more like Christ and know more about you and actually apply your understanding and wisdom to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.